Good morning, church. Uh, great to be with you. Uh, and today in, in this Naturally Supernatural series, we're coming to a bit of a shift of emphasis in the series for the next few weeks. So over the last three weeks, uh, we've tried to lay a foundation of what the naturally supernatural life looks like, the, the, the kind of life that Jesus modeled, going around, doing good in the power of the spirit, healing all who are oppressed by the devil. We talked about the foundational importance of knowing God as your father and that you are a dearly loved son or daughter. The importance of understanding the kingdom of God is another crucial foundation of the naturally supernatural life. And then last week, the motivation of love and compassion that must be behind all of this. And a really good picture of all of that is one that Jesus gave us in John chapter 7 where he talked about rivers of living water flowing from within us, flowing out of us, that as we come to him and drink, as, as we receive the spirit, as we receive the love and the power of God for ourselves, that there's also this river of the spirit that flows from within us to those around us. It's a river of love, a river of power, not our love and power, but the supernatural love and power of God. But how many of us know that it often feels less like a river and more like a trickle or even a dribble. <laughs> now, why is that? Why is that? If Jesus says that rivers of living water will flow from within us if we come to him and drink, and of course, that might be one reason why there's no river, because we're not regularly coming to him to drink. But if Jesus says that when we do that, there'll be rivers of living water, why does our experience not always or often match up to that? If you think about a physical river, if you, if you have a landslide and a number of large boulders fall into the river, they're going to restrict and block the flow of that river and maybe even reduce it to a trickle. Now, in the same way, there are spiritual boulders, spiritual rocks that can block the flow of the river of the spirit in our lives. And if we want that river to flow freely, which I trust that we do, then these are things that need to be removed these rocks that need to be removed. And how do they get removed? Well, they get removed through repentance. Repentance, which literally means to think differently. It's less to do with saying sorry, or, although that's part of repentance, but it's more to do with a total transformation of our thoughts about ourselves, about God and about his kingdom. Recognizing where we have heart attitudes and ways of thinking that are out of line with what is actually true. And so over the next six weeks, we're going to focus on some of those rocks that can be particularly effective at blocking the flow of that river in our lives. The purpose being, of course, the purpose of focusing on those rocks is to remove them, is to help us to, to repent and to change our thinking so that the river of the spirit can flow through us in increasing measure with increased gifting and increased anointing, increased power, increased love and ultimately increasing fruit. And the first of those rocks that we're looking at today is disappointment, the rock of disappointment. And we're going to start with a passage in Luke chapter seven. And in this passage, John the Baptist is sending two of his disciples to ask Jesus a question. So I'm going to pick it up from verse 20 in Luke seven. When the men had come to him, come to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? Now, in that hour, Jesus healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, go and tell John 
what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now, what is going on here? This is John the Baptist asking if Jesus really is the one, if he actually is the promised Messiah. That's pretty shocking if you think about it, because it was John who was one of the first to hear from God and have that revelation that Jesus was the promised Messiah, this promised king spoken of in all the Old Testament prophecies, that he really was the one who'd come to usher in the kingdom of God. And not only did John have the revelation, he had announced it to everybody. Look, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one whose sandals I'm not worthy to tie. This is the one who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And John had baptized Jesus and he had seen that the Holy Spirit descend on him like a dove. He'd heard the voice of God the Father coming from heaven. I mean, what amazing things to witness. But now he's doubting. And so what is going on? What's happened? How, how can someone who has experienced so much of God arrive in this place of doubt? Well, John is sending his two disciples because he himself is in prison. He had been thrown into prison by Herod. And clearly John had a picture in his mind of what he thought the kingdom coming should look like. And clearly Jesus wasn't bringing the kingdom in the way that John expected or thought that he should. Things were not working out the way that John had anticipated, and he was disappointed. He was disappointed, and it led to this doubt. And that line that Jesus said at the end, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. John, it seems, was offended by Jesus, probably, again, because of certain things that Jesus hadn't done. I mean, Jesus, Jesus had declared right at the beginning of his ministry, I have come to set the captives free. Where is John? John's in prison. You know, this isn't working out the way that he thought. And Jesus is concerned not so much about John being physically in prison. I think he's concerned about that as well. But he's primarily concerned about the spiritual prison of disappointment or offense with God. And so he he tries to reassure John that the kingdom really is coming. Look at all these signs of the kingdom breaking in. Yes, I really am the one you spoke about. You didn't get it wrong. Now, John, take care to not be offended at me. Don't let your sense of disappointment based on wrong expectations, don't let that take root. Look at what I am doing. Look at what is going on. Don't let disappointment lead you into doubt. Now, if someone like John, John the Baptist, this amazing prophet, that the connection between the Old and the New Testament, the one who had this huge revelation of Jesus, if someone like John is able to fall into doubt caused by disappointment or offense with God, then that can happen to any one of us. We are all susceptible to that. And disappointment or offense can be one huge boulder in the river, resisting the flow of the spirit through us. Now, In his book, Sustainable Power, um, some of you may have read this, Simon Holly, who we know, uh, who we know well, Simon illustrates this point uh, about disappointment or offense with God with the example of his wife, Caroline. And Caroline's someone who sees a lot of healing now. She prays for people and sees a lot of people heal. But this is what Simon writes. He says, when we first began to see healing on a regular basis, Caroline didn't see anybody healed. And as she was speaking to the Lord about this one day, she had a vivid memory of a time when she was in her late teens. A friend, Julie, had been killed in a car crash. 
And Caroline and Julie's brother uh, went to the hospital to ask God for a resurrection. And they stood around her body crying out for God to raise her from the dead. But it was not to be. And Julie was buried shortly afterwards. Now, years later, God brought this back to Caroline's mind and said to her, you are offended with me. Even though it happened many years before, Caroline realized in her heart she didn't have peace over this incident. She had been holding God to account for it in some way, and she knew that this was decidedly unhealthy. She repented and to this day believes that this was a critical moment for her in her journey towards walking in the living river of the spirit. Disappointment with God, offense with God can get in and it's something that can get in and it can take root in our hearts and become like a spiritual prison. So I was talking last week with Kevin and Kirsten John Smith. Many of you know Kevin and Kirsten, they've been part of the church for many years, longer than I have. Um, And back in 2005, Kevin and Kirsten's son, Adam, died after a battle with cancer. And, you know, I remember that time and many of you will remember that time. They were absolutely full of faith, absolute conviction for his for his healing. And they'd seen many miracles along the way, many signs of hope along the way. But then Adam died and they were really honest with me. I really appreciated their honesty. They were so honest with me about the impact of that, not not just the impact of the loss in itself, which, of course, is something you never get over. You, You don't get over that kind of a loss but actually also the impact of that aspect of disappointment. Disappointment of Adam dying in spite of so many faith-filled prayers being prayed by so many different people. And they talked to me about a sense of stagnation that that brought in, in in, in their walk with God and, and stepping back from praying for healing for others because it's easier to not have to face that disappointment again. I also talked to Sally Bundock. Again, many of you know Sally. She's spoken on Sunday morning a few times. And Sally's husband, Paul, died just just a few years ago. Again, after much faith-filled prayer from many different people and lots of miracles along the way, great signs of hope. But of course, when Paul died, uh, Sally said, well, it was just devastating, as it would be for everybody, that, that kind of loss. But also that it was a massive disappointment. A huge disappointment and Sally talked about feeling numb for a long time and really not being able to talk to God about it. I'll share a little bit more on those stories uh, a bit later. Now, of course, disappointment with God, it can come in all sorts of ways. That kind of severe, extreme loss, that's clearly one way, but it can come in all sorts of ways. So any time you feel that he hasn't come through for you or you know things haven't gone the way that you think they should have done. Or you've tried to pray for healing, you've tried to share words of knowledge, but nothing seems to happen. Or maybe you were convinced that God was giving you this particular job. It just felt so right, but then it didn't happen. Or this person on your blessed list, they they seem to be getting so close to faith and then they backed right off. Disappointment with God can get into our hearts through big things and through small things, and it can build and it can grow over time if it's not dealt with. And it leads us to struggling to trust God or or to believe him for breakthrough. It affects our faith. And so we get to the point where we don't really expect too much because we don't want to face disappointment again. And so we back off the naturally supernatural life. And disappointment's like throwing a wet cloth on the fire. It, it, It dampens faith, it dampens expectancy, And it opens you up 
to lies from the enemy. You know, maybe God doesn't really love you. Or maybe you didn't have enough faith. Maybe the church didn't have enough faith. It opens you up to the lies of the enemy. And so disappointment becomes toxic, toxic to our own faith and also in the community of faith, a huge boulder in the river. So how can we live free from the stranglehold of disappointment? And no, from, not, not free from disappointment itself, not free from loss, because they are just an inevitable part of life. Everybody has to navigate disappointment in life. But how do we live free from the stranglehold of disappointment, free from the spiritual prison of disappointment? Well, to get out of prison, you need keys. And so I'm going to mention three particular keys today. The first key is to process your disappointment in a healthy way. A a way that prevents the reality of that disappointment from becoming toxic. A way to express pain and disappointment without ultimately accusing God of wrong. Because the problem is that we tend to respond to disappointment in one of two ways. One is that we allow disappointment to take root and we, we just we live under tyranny. The second is that disappointment gets in, gets into our heart, but we don't acknowledge it. We just try to leap straight to the spiritual answer. God is good and he can't do anything wrong, which is true. But you're still left with this swirling, unresolved mess inside. And that's not what Jesus did. That's not what Jesus did with disappointment. What did Jesus cry out on the cross? He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that is a cry of anguish. That's a cry of pain that's way beyond the physical pain that he's in. Now, did Jesus believe that his father had ultimately forsaken him? Well, no, because he had told his disciples he's going to be raised from the dead. He knew what was true. So why did he say it? It was because he was expressing the very real pain, the depth of pain that he felt in his soul at that moment of abandonment. At that moment of forsakenness, you know, there is no pretense with Jesus. But this is what we see in the Psalms. This is what the psalmists do. If you want help with processing pain and disappointment, read the Psalms. They get it all out before God. They hold nothing back. Psalm 6 verse 6 says, I am worn out from groaning. All night long, I flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears. My eyes grow weak with sorrow. They fail because of all my foes. Or or Psalm 13, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me, answer me, O Lord, my God. It's pretty raw. It's pretty raw stuff. There's nothing left in the locker. There's nothing held back. There's no attempt at politeness. It's raw honesty and an expression of pain and disappointment to God. Now, we don't tend to sing those songs in our worship and prayer times, do we? You know, we don't often hear uh, somebody saying, I'm going to bring a new song today. And it's called, Lord, I'm worn out from all my groaning. (laughs) We, We don't tend to do that, do we? In a Western culture, We're not good at lamenting. We've lost the art of lamenting. Now, this is a fantastic book. Andrew and Rachel Wilson written this great book called The Life You Never Expected. And it's talking about a particular disappointment that they faced in their life and how they processed it and, and, and lived with it. And it really does apply to 
any kind of disappointment. I'd really recommend uh, anybody reads this. But here's something that Andrew says about lamenting. He says, there's something about expressing what we feel in words and in music that helps us to come to terms with it and to take it before God in anguished prayer. Christians in particular can feel like we ought not to vent our emotions at God. We, we prefer tidy prayers like, God, we don't understand, but we trust you. We prefer those to the chaotic, confused, howling prayers that we see in the Psalms. But those songs are in the Bible because we are supposed to express ourselves in that way. How long, O oh Lord, will you forget us forever? What are you doing? Can't you see that we're in agony down here, banging our fists against our tear-soaked pillows, eating dust for dinner? If you ever loved us, O oh God, come and fix things now. And if God is big enough to be worth yelling at about your situation... He's big enough to take your pain, to hear your lament and somehow use it to comfort you in the confusion. The power of lament, the power of processing disappointment. I mentioned Sally earlier, whose husband Paul died and and how she described feeling numb and not being able to talk to God about it for a long time. But she also said this. She said, I knew that that was okay." And I chose to stay in relationship with God always. I I didn't run away from my father in heaven. I kept him at the center of my world. In my hurt and disappointment, I wanted to be close to him because I knew that he was key to my healing and recovery. For months, we were just being. No agenda. I was just safe in his presence. And I was trusting that he would look after me and help me through each day. But eventually, this is what Sally said, eventually, I could then start to talk to him about how I was feeling and about my disappointment. I wasn't in denial. I was in a place where I could talk to my father honestly about my feelings and know that he would slowly repair me. So processing disappointment, processing pain with God is just so important. And being completely honest with him, not trying to filter what you're saying, to somehow make it more palatable to him as if like, I I can't say that to God, can I? Yes, you can. You don't need to make it more Christian. He already knows what's in your head. He knows what's in your heart and he wants you to express it to him completely honestly. And of course, it's not something that can be rushed. You've got to take your time over that. But being able to process disappointment and pain in an honest and healthy way with God, that's what's going to start to lead you back towards the truth. And it's so important to get back to the truth, not to short circuit the processing of the pain, but that it leads you back to the truth, the truth of who God really is, the truth of who you really are in Christ. David ends Psalm 13, having got it all off his chest to God, having processed his disappointment, having lamented, David ends that psalm, uh, not with a, 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 a shallow, uh, false spirituality, spurious statement, wishful thinking, No, no, no. He ends it with an authentic, hope-filled declaration of truth. He says, but I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, for he has been good to me. He's led to truth. We must be led back to truth. And so the first key that we have in our hand to that prison door is to process our disappointment in a healthy way. The second key is to understand that God owes you nothing. God owes you nothing. He loves to give you good things, but he doesn't owe you anything. 
There is a spirit of entitlement and, and self-pity in our culture. It's rife in our culture. You know, the world owes me something. My parents owe me something. God owes me something. The truth is God owes you nothing. He owes you nothing. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. You deserve to die. I deserve to die. God owes you nothing. Now, why does knowing that set us free? Well, it's because everything then becomes a gift. Everything is a gift. Even if God does nothing else, I have already had far, far more than I deserve. And it clears the ground for the second half of Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death, but, but the gift of God, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It means that we start to focus more on what God has done and is doing and celebrating that than on focusing on what he hasn't done. And John the Baptist, it seems, he had, he had forgotten what God had done because he was focusing more on what he hadn't done. But Jesus gently says to him, no, no, but look at what I am doing. Look at what I am doing. Look at what is going on. The kingdom is at hand. Understanding that God owes us nothing leads us into gratitude for everything, everything he's given us. And gratitude is the gateway to an encounter with God. Psalm 100 verse 4 says, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. It means that we can express gratitude for everything, even the small breakthroughs. You know, sometimes we might hear a report of a partial healing, like my wrist, it was an eight out of 10 for pain. Now it's a four. And our knee jerk response to that kind of story can often be disappointment. Well, you know, why didn't God heal it completely? That's not a very good story, is it? Like that's not an impressive enough miracle for us. The reality is I can't heal anything on my own and you can't heal anything on your own. God has done something. If there's been a reduction in pain, God has done that. Nothing else, no one else. God has worked a miracle. So let's celebrate that. Let's be grateful for that. And let's continue to pray for complete healing. Gratitude is so, so important. And the gratitude that comes from understanding that God owes us nothing means that we can celebrate someone else's breakthrough someone else is healing, even while still waiting for our own, rather than falling for the attitude of, well, that's great for you, isn't it? But what about me? Gratitude is so important. So the first key is to process disappointment. The second key is to understand that God owes us nothing. And then the final key is to lay down our right to understand. Lay down your right to understand. I mentioned Kevin and Kirsten earlier, whose son Adam died. And this was one of the biggest things that came out as they were talking to me, that you really, really want to know why. Why something has happened or why something hasn't happened. You want to know why. They, Kevin and Kirsten have a firm conviction that God will use what happened for good. But it's not always easy to see what that good is. We want to know what the good is. We want to know why this has happened. They've seen other miraculous healing in their family, which is something they rejoice in. But of course, it can also raise the question, well, God, why, why did you heal that and, and not Adam? And the honest answer is, well, we don't know. We just don't know. It's a mystery. It's a mystery. John the Baptist was in prison. He never got out of prison. He was put to death. Later on in the book of Acts, Peter is in prison, but he is miraculously let out. So why was John not let out and Peter was? We see this person healed, but that person isn't healed. We want to understand the mystery. We want to understand why. 
because we think that that is what is going to bring us peace. That understanding will bring us peace, but it's actually a very different kind of peace that the Bible talks about. So the Apostle Paul, uh, who is himself in prison, he's writing from prison. He says this in Philippians 4, and this is very familiar to us. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And then this is the promise that the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, it surpasses understanding. That's the peace that will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You know, the peace that we need comes not in the understanding, but in the surrender. The peace we need comes not in the understanding, but in the surrender. We have to lay down our right to understand and put our trust in the goodness and the sovereignty of God, even in especially in the mystery. Now, God doesn't promise us complete understanding, but he does promise us peace. And we need that peace. And you know what? In all the mystery, there is one thing that I do understand. Christ died for you. Christ died for you. The wages of sin is death, but the gift, the free gift of God, won for us by Jesus, is eternal life. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, Jesus gave his life for you. He was nailed to a cross by your sin so that you could know that peace and you could know the hope he brings. Now, who knows why one person gets healed and another doesn't? Who knows why the breakthrough sometimes takes so long? But what I do know is that it's not because Jesus doesn't love you. He's demonstrated that. And Jesus teaches us to pray and not give up. He teaches us to cry out until we see the kingdom come, till we see the broken restored and we see justice flowing like a river and we see miracles in the streets. He calls us to live a naturally supernatural life for the advance of his kingdom. And of course, the more we go after this, the more we go after a naturally supernatural life, the more we will on one hand see more breakthrough, but on the other hand, we will also see more mystery where we don't see the breakthrough. And part of the naturally supernatural life is having to navigate disappointment. But it's what God calls us to. It's what he calls us to, to live a naturally supernatural life for the advance of his kingdom, for rivers of living water to flow from within us. So let's remove the rocks from the river, starting with this one, disappointment with God, offense with God. We've got to repent of that. We've got to root it out of our hearts. So why don't you set aside some time this week, a chunk of time, put it in your diary, set aside time first to ask God to uncover any disappointment that you may be holding against him. And you may well already be aware of it. But then spend time processing that disappointment honestly with God. Just tell him exactly what, what you're feeling. Tell him exactly what's going on. He knows anyway. And then let it lead you towards the truth, the truth of who God is, the truth of who you are. Process disappointment with God and then understand that God owes you nothing. Everything is a gift and lay down your right to understand. Trust God and know his peace that surpasses understanding. Let's come to Jesus now.